it's my hope that by really clear, you know, being clear in what we want our students to know and to communicate those expectations and to design invitations to design tasks that are language rich and that elicit and you know <laughs> those those target skills and then give them the tools to actually evaluate the extent to which they're growing in my mind that's a kind of a, a path forward an infrastructure for our own classrooms to you know bring a really more equitable uh, you know fairer student-centered um, you know, approach for learning. This week on the ML Chat Podcast, Tim Blackburn joins us again to continue the conversation around the formative assessment process. Tim walks us through having a clear intended learning destination, designing deliberate invitations for students to apprentice and target skills, and analyzing and interpreting how students are growing in the concept, skills, and language. Tim also discusses and walks us through the challenge of balancing the expectations of covering the standards while also responding to students' needs. This is part three of our series with Tim. If you haven't had a chance to listen to part one or part two yet, uh, make sure you enjoy those. That might be a great place to start. Thank you for listening and enjoy this episode of the ML Chat Podcast. All right, welcome back, everybody. My name is Justin Hewitt, and I have the privilege of sitting here again with my good friend, Tim Blackburn. Uh, Tim is the uh, officially the Title III Administrator for mm-hmm. Tigrid Tualatin School District, uh, just outside of Portland and uh, Portland, Oregon, and, uh, you know, works with our multilingual students and and we have been kind of talking through clear intended learning. Tim, welcome to the show. Welcome back. Yeah, thanks, Justin. It's good it's to have fun. you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, do you mind giving us just, you know, we've kind of been doing this as a as a multi-part series. Do you mind talking through a little bit what we've covered and then maybe just give us a, a quick preview of what we're going to get into today as far as interpreting and analyzing evidence? Sure. You know, basically, you know, Justin, we've we've delved into a four-part cycle of learning. It's called the, the formative assessment process. It's um, you know, also known as formative assessment practice. But, uh, but again, you know, these concepts are, they're not mine, right? But, <laughs> but rather they're uh, developed by our colleagues at Understanding Language at, at Stanford. Um, and, and you'll find that, yes, they are... Um, you know, crucial steps for serving multilingual students. And I think if you were to zoom out, you would say, that, well, this just what we're describing is really just very sound instructional practice. Mm-hmm. And, and that is really because of the, the intentionality behind it. And so, you know, part one that we discussed is um, having clear intended learning that, I have a like a very clear sense of the destination. I know that I want my students to know and be able to do um, yeah, certain skills and and understand certain concepts and apply those concepts in novel ways. And crucially, that my students have the the language skills required for success in explaining and articulating the, those understandings. 
So it's those you know, those three dimensions that we that we discussed that are crucial lenses for um, defining that clear intended learning. Class concepts, uh, disciplinary skills are also known as disciplinary practices. It's kind of like the those verbs at the start of our Common Core standards. Mm-hmm. And thirdly, the associated language demand. And then, you know, after after we discussed clear intended learning, we talked about the ways in which we design, you know, you know, deliberate invitations for our students to apprentice in those three skill dimensions over time and how we kind of, you know, design learning in such a way that it spirals and offers students, you know, supported uh, spaces, right? to to learn these concepts to try on these practices and to develop the associated language and we call that step um eliciting evidence mm-hmm. that yeah. is you know I'm excited after, to dive into we're that. the yeah we're the facilitators of the learning right um it's not on us to impart all of the knowledge but but rather to design the experiences that our students are able to build competency in those in those target uh, you know target chunks of knowledge and the target concepts the target skills and 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 the language, mm-hmm. but you know for today, it's 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 all about you know discussing tools to to analyze and interpret how our students are are growing in 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 those in those concepts the skills and the language. To what extent have our students grown as a result of the learning that we've designed? And the next time the next time we meet, we'll unpack what it means to actually, you know, like act on what we what we've ascertained through this formative assessment cycle. I love that. I love that. I'm I'm excited to talk about eliciting evidence today. Before we get there, I want to just you mentioned that, you know, yes, this is best practices for serving our multilingual students, but really it's just best practices in general. Kind of right? broadly. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, you know, talk to that maybe just a little bit, if you don't mind, just because, you know, or maybe unpack it, because I'm just kind of thinking about, you know, if it is best practice and it's something we know we should be doing with, you know, really all students, why does it sometimes not happen with our multilingual students? Or maybe why is it, you know, when it doesn't happen, why is it not happening? I think it's a fair question. I don't know that I have like a, a great, <laughs> like a great answer for it. But, you know, my, uh, actually, my wife, Lisa, she, um, you know, during the pandemic, you know, we were all working from home. Right. <laughs> and I really, at, at one point, you know, during a, a during a conversation with a colleague, you know, I, I just really like unpacked these four ideas, <laughs> ideas. And then my wife looked over to me afterwards and she said, are you still talking about that? Like you're still, <laughs> this is like, you've been talking about this your entire career. And this is like, still like a, you know, an area of, of need. And I, I choose not to really like have like a, a deficit orientation to it, but rather like to think about it as an opportunity for, you know, to, to, you know, call attention to the ways in which, um, you know, this process, these practices, um, are basically, you know, 
uh, an invitation for us to think about our own practice in a critical way. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of that comes down to actually ch- like challenging our mental model for what school you know looks like, sounds like, and feels like. Yeah. And and further, you know, I don't think our school systems do us any favors in that regard. I mean, we basically, in, you know, in a lot of ways, we have to think about what is the impact of um, quote unquote covering the standards. Yeah, or or teaching to a specific, um, you know, like a curriculum, and kind of like the implicit messages that that you know school district leaders and you know just educate you know, and and certainly you know the <laughs> broader you know broader school systems you know at the state and federal level what are we actually communicating in terms of you know the teacher's role and and imparting skills. Again, like I, 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 I don't have that answer, Justin. Yeah. But I can f- speak from my experience as a as a classroom teacher, and you know, and noting that sort of that tension, mm-hmm. you know, between you know, like covering the content and you know, responding to my students' needs. Yeah, there's that there's that challenge of of the system that's in place and the certain expectations of what needs to be taught and, you know, what you need to, you know, as we talked about last time, what needs to be covered, right. And what you have to get to. And and it's just interesting to think about, you know, how much of it is teacher training, how much of it is the, um, just the educational system in general that we have in place. Right. And like how we, have the common core and we have these standards and we have these different, anyways, it's, it's interesting to try and work through that and, and think about it. Um, it is. I mean, but I mean, I see, you know, teachers coming, coming out of, you know, um, graduate, you know, you know, teacher education programs now. And I'm really impressed by what I see actually. Okay. <laughs> you know, there are certain like policy, there are certain policies that seem to be panning out in terms of teacher prep and, you know, the ways in which, you know, I hear, you know, my, my colleagues that are new to the profession, the way I hear them talking about, say, the impact of ed TPA and just the impact of those performance tasks on their own learning, uh, you know, that that seems to be really positive, you know, and I, I kind of, you know, um, endured a different system <laughs> that didn't have those those you know, performance tasks associated with it. And that is, it was mostly sort of a trial by fire, being an alternative, like a product of an alternative pathway. But do you mind it. defining ed TPA for anybody? Oh, I wish I had the acronym. Ed, ed TPA is is a common. It's a performance task. You know, we're probably gonna have to go back and re-record this part. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, it's a uh, oh goodness. I can ask that question again if you want. Yeah, to. like I imagine it's something like teacher performance assessment or something like that. Okay, but, but I, I I I'm making that up. Oh, but absolutely. effectively, it's like a series of performance tasks that teachers, okay. that you know, novice teachers have to um, develop and and respond to and actually apply in a classroom setting as a student teacher. Okay, well, I love this. I I, I appreciate you kind of thinking through that a little bit with me. Just you know, when we were talking about best practice, it just kind of made me think like, well, if we already know like this is the best way to do it, why aren't 
We're doing it with everybody, right? Um, well, let's jump yeah. in. Oh, yeah. go ahead. <laughs> no, it's just the way that you described it. It's like, yes, fair question. Let's do it. Let's go. So let's jump into eliciting, you know, or we talked about eliciting evidence, I guess, last time and like, you know, how to do it, why to do it, what to do it. And we gave some examples and whatnot. So yeah. now you've, you've gathered that evidence. Talk, talk to us about like, where do we go from here? How do we interpret? How do we analyze this? You know? How do we really understand it and approach this work? Well, I think that what is so crucial to understand is that this is where the through line to clear intended learning is so so crucial, right? Because you know now that you've created these invitations for students to show you what they know and are able to do, and you're like you're clear on what it is that you're actually looking for in terms of all right, this is what I want them to know. How do I see? those concepts come up in their in their writing and in their their language output in terms of speaking and i think that's probably like the fundamental concept associated with with illicit evidence is is all about the output mm-hmm. and so when you think about interpreting and analyzing the evidence and you think about it as like applying a set of lenses on top of that language output. So what is it that I'm actually looking for? Okay, I've articulated those things in my learning outcomes. Now, analyzing that that evidence now it's it's basically taking a you know taking tools like uh, proficiency scales, rubrics, tools to help you, um, you know, determine where your students start and how they're growing in those target skills, you know, over time through their, through their, for their classwork. And I think there's like, there's so many like things to unpack here, but like, firstly, that is just as far as like proficiency scales go, I'm not making this stuff up. I mean, this this comes from like, you know, John Hattie's and Robert Marsano's work on, on, you know, effective best practices for building student metacognition. And so, you know, here it's, it's, it's really like kind of um, emphasizing to, to students that they are indeed partners in the work and that it's not just about me as your teacher giving you a grade. And that's kind of like the cool part about this, Justin, is that like when I made this shift, grading became a partnership and it was no longer like a problematic sort of mystery, right? That the the grade book was all of a sudden, you know, like a public and open to the student and their partners in this process. And I can imagine that was so empowering for the students right because now they really understood where they were at and it wasn't just this you know this ambiguous you know thing that oh i got this score or whatever i got a c on this well what does that mean yeah but rather oh i'm still emerging in this particular class concepts but it looks like i'm growing in the skills of evaluating an argument Mm-hmm. And it looks like I'm also improving in the ways in which I'm using compare and contrast language. Are those proficiency scales? Is that like, is that something that I would gather from 
you know, Alpa or Wida or something like that. You can, yeah. They're not, those wouldn't be necessarily like very, well, excuse me, I shouldn't speak to Wida because they do do it differently. But the, you know, there, there are, yes, plenty of proficiency scales, you know, to, to look at, I think as resources for, for, you know, building your own proficiency skills, uh, your proficiency scales, you know, for your, for your classroom tasks. But it is really important that the scales do indeed match Mm -hmm. your clear intended learning. What I find is that the scales really inform and give me language for describing the the discrepancies between steps and what I might expect of an emergent multilingual learner on a compare and contrast task in a ninth grade world history classroom. What could that look like in terms of the, um, the the degree of scaffolding to support students and in, in generating grade level grade level work. So again, just to you know reiterate here that the probably like the, the most important part of this interpreting evidence concept is really not so much about the teacher, but really it's the fostering of the partnership between teacher and student and then. Um, evaluating the extent to which our students are growing in the target skills and really encouraging and fostering the, that, that awareness, right, of how I'm growing in, my, in these skills. And uh, so that's kind of the, the, the crucial, crucial foundation there. I want to kind of think about that for just a second because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I love what, you know, looking at that list that Hattie compiled of the, the top influences on student achievement, right, and teacher clarity is one of those. And one of the things that I found is I, you know, as I meet with, you know, teachers and directors who are in this work, serving our multilingual students really across the country, a lot of times they say to me something to the effect that, well, I haven't even received any training on this. Here I've been in this work for this long. And from a, like when it comes to speaking, for example, I don't even, I don't necessarily know how to score that, how to give feedback on that per se. I, I do my best. I go with my gut. I, you know, do some of these things. So I guess I'm curious as to, it, it feels like there's a lot of ambiguity around this. And, um, but the way that you talk about it, it makes it feel so approachable and so easy. Why is there a, kind of a disconnect in, in a lot of places, do you think? <laughs> the, the why... It is new, right? And and it could be, you know, that we're, we're just sort of off-roading in the sense that, like, it's a it's a a, a novel practice that requires it, you know, like a, a shift. It's also time-consuming at in in the sense that, um, you know, time-consuming in the sense that, you know, when you're building something new, it's it's it can feel a little, um, it can feel heavy, but something that really kind of jostled loose for me in, in, in hearing you share, Justin, is that you don't have to do it alone. And if we're talking about John Hattie, like what the, you, know, you think about like the, the value of say our collective work, our, our teacher collaboration and actually defining that clear intended learning right. and developing the associated, you know, learning scales to, 
you know, so that we do have the, like the tools to coach students and, and having their own clarity um, of, and, and owning their own, their own learning. Um, you don't have to do it on your own. And that's actually something that I, I you know, wanted to, to speak to earlier is that, yeah, we, we, we do have tools to help, you know, prime, you know, uh, language, you know, between these learning skills and that you don't have to do it alone. And actually some of the best experiences I've had as a, say, as a coach at, at Tigard High School um, and in the Internationals Network in, in New York, it's, you know, oh, even in California too, I've seen teachers like come together and use their English language proficiency standards as a foundation for actually articulating those scales once they see the discrete connections between the the focus standards uh, and their and their class learning objectives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a lot of um, a lot of good that comes from not going it alone, right? Like trying to find community, try and find others that you can do that with, whether it's in the building or in the district, or maybe it's not, right? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is certainly like when I think about trans, like transformative practice, and you know where I've, where where I have experienced it, mm-hmm. it's you know colleagues coming together around a a, a a common idea and and working together, you know, for a for a solution. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I've seen so many efforts that have had opposite you know consequences because they were they were, they were perceived to be top down right but like teams of colleagues coming together because they care about doing what's best for their students mm-hmm. that's that's the stuff right that's the secret sauce really and is. you know like when i was very emergent in these practices as a teacher in the in the international at international community high school that's that's something I think that always kept us moving forward was our our sincere desire to make the experience coherent for our students. We didn't want them to have to guess what Mr. Tim and Miss Jen and Miss Marie wanted, mm-hmm. but rather to clearly articulate, you know, where we're going and then to give them to, the tools to actually monitor the extent to which they're growing in those target skills. Another cool part about that is that it it sets you up into this place where there's there's no more failing classes. If if you were to to to, to really like <laughs> not have success in a particular class, something really went wrong. Right. And that's because like the feedback loop between teacher and student is so constant mm-hmm. that you know we're always working to a solution in very specific and very specific class skills. And there's something, when you think about that in terms of like instructional equity and thinking about the, the ways in which that's, you know, differentiated for and responsive to our students, it's it's basically equips, equips us with language, um, equips us with tools mm-hmm. to, yes, you know, build metacognition for our students so that they actually see the connection between, you know, what they are doing and what they are learning and how they are growing. Um, and 
it also as a as a teacher equips me with with tools to be an effective differentiator i love that i love that and i love what you shared about as far as like when you were gathered together doing that work and like the magic that was in it the secret sauce it reminds me of some plcs that we've been in where they're using flashlight 360 to listen to their students and they're calibrating together and they're listening with such intentionality and and it's kind of a work that they haven't done before like this right they they haven't done this it reminds me of that ralph waldo emerson quote about how the mind once stretched by a new idea never returns to its original dimensions right it's like oh this is the, I, I am a new person now and I, I'm going to approach this differently and I have this new outlook and and I feel like approaching this work with that with through this lens of clear intended learning clear intended learning really like that's this new idea that stretches the mind and so kind of kind of take us if you don't mind you know you I don't know if you have a thought on that or if uh we would love to maybe dive deeper into this interpret and analyze evidence. Well, it's just that the 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 Emerson quote is really just I think just so appropriate, right? Mm-hmm. That these ideas, this process did lead to transformative change in in my classroom and and I believe, you know, you know, the same was true for my colleagues on our on our team and I've really tried to use those that, that same sort of experience to share these practices with with others and places I've had the opportunity to serve as a coach because they they do stretch us right you know these you know these concepts applied you know stretch us to to, <laughs> to try them out in in different contexts to see what works what but what doesn't work but I do think that, at the heart of this, you know, really, you know, that's, it, it's our students' growth. And, and really thinking about that growth across multiple dimensions. That implicit here is that we really have to kind of like shift our understanding along with the, <laughs> along with our 21st century standards to a, a, account for, um, yes, you know, mastering concepts and to really, you know, think about the exploring these disciplinary practices and the, the implicit connection to, you know, language demands that are, that shift in so many different ways. (laughs) And in order for me to, to grow in those, um, those language demands, I have to have the opportunity to do so right and the safe space to do that well uh tim i'm loving this conversation i think you are the man (laughs) (laughs) um what i was just going to do now is just uh ask you just to trying to get into more of the how knowing that we've got 10 minutes left yeah in a position to that is there anything else in the kind of the what you want to cover no, I, th- I, you know, I feel like in, in terms of the what, you know, like, you know, we've covered that pretty well, but the, the how I think is, is so important because it can feel a little daunting um, and, and, and how to like go about um, designing proficiency scales. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure that a lot of my colleagues can relate to 
how it feels to feel like you're making up language in a rubric. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was pretty liberating actually. <laughs> and um, like back in 2013 or so, 2013, 2014, um, when our our new English language proficiency standards came out and I saw that, oh man, like these could be a tool to, it's my hope that by really clear, you know, being clear in what we want our students to know and to communicate those expectations and to design invitations to design tasks that are language rich and that elicit and you know <laughs> those those target skills and then give them the tools yeah. to actually evaluate the extent to which they're growing in my mind that's a kind of a, a path forward an infrastructure for our own classrooms to you know bring a really more equitable uh, you know fairer student centered um, you know, approach for learning. This was a, <laughs> the, same, the same scale uh, shared uh, universally um, in our school. Uh, again, as like an agreed upon practice for coherence. Yeah. And really thinking about the student experience and, you know, working to simplicity and working to clarity. And it was that four point scale a a three is it was a, was proficient in that scale okay. four is highly proficient a two is emerging um or or like approaching you could use like a, 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 a approaching and a one we described as not yet and i like that because it feels it feels like a you know on either end either highly proficient or did you say limited what was the beginning uh not yet uh-huh. yeah, not yet mm-hmm. those ones are binary it feels like right like you're either highly proficient or you're not necessarily or you're like it, it and then it and then in the middle the middle two you can just feel am i closer to this or am i cl- to this end or closer to that end right is that is that what the reason to use a four point scale we wanted to basically to offer you know um, enough runway for students that were not yet proficient or approaching proficiency to 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 demonstrate how they are indeed growing to the target. That was really like the big reason behind um, the the four point scale. Uh, additionally, having the four point scale, we we found that you could really like differentiate for you know the just the myriad skill sets you know in our classrooms for instance like in my mind i have like five students like that i I, their names are right there and their faces are right there and i can i can see how when i wasn't yet differentiating for what they needed i i can actually see viscerally their faces (laughs) In the sense that, like, how I wasn't yet meeting meeting their needs, yeah. and I think that having the proficiency scales enabled, you know, like enabled me to actually have language for kind of like um, creating more more invitations for the first for my students to apply those concepts in more in like novel ways. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so you're showing me that you're. 
highly proficient in the ways in which we're applying these skills. So now let's create um, in the, like a different application of these skills and we're see we're going to see what you can do. And and again, it was it it, it was like the simple the simple fact that I had the tools and enabled me to actually think critically about where each of my students are individually, not just as the collective. And I think for me, that was like the big shift. That is, that is, and it's amazing to me to think of that student that you could viscerally see that you weren't meeting their needs, right? That you were able to be that in tune with that student. And that still, and, and realize that you were not giving them what they kind of needed at the moment. And so it makes me think a little bit like. They weren't the squeaky getting... wheel either, you know, like, and that was the part of the problem. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. But if, uh, for Umar, if uh, Umar and, and, and Bethsaida are out there, I was thinking of you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fun. That's fun. Um so it makes me think a little bit about like a teacher that's wanting to approach this work or a director that's looking at how do I put this in place, you know, to, to do this in my district. And, and, and like, what if I'm a teacher, maybe talk to that teacher that maybe there's not a system in place in their district. Like, how do you get started doing this? Yeah. And that's the, and that's the thing is that like, we have to think about, you know, where can we situate, you know, this for success? Where do I have colleagues that are really willing to like to take this on and own it? And I confess, like, that's where I am in, in, in Tiger Twalden right now. It's, you know, working, you know, working with, you know, like specific teams of colleagues that want to jump in with this. Like, um, actually on prior projects before I became um, an administrator here in the school district, I, I served at Education Northwest. And I got to coach uh, just a brilliant team of colleagues at Tigard High School that were just really interested in in designing clear intended learning, mm-hmm. of like growing in how they design language rich tasks, and then you know using our language proficiency resources like the achievement level descriptors in our um, in our language proficiency standards, or the standards descriptive descriptors themselves, and kind of exploring how to write student-friendly proficiency scales to attach to their learning outcomes or learning objectives or learning targets. Call them what you will. Right. They're, they're clear intended learning connected to descriptors for growth. And what if I'm a director trying to, uh, you know, I'm looking at trying to put this into my district and it's not something that is in place necessarily. Our, our teachers who are working with our multilingual students, like this is all brand new to them. Like, where would you start? Like, where- yeah, with a willing team. Like, it has to be with like a willing team, either like a department team or a PLC, um, an interdisciplinary team. But, or, you know, within a particular grade level at an elementary school, like, I would look for a pocket of colleagues that is, you know, really wanting to grow in this specific way. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the, the models for grading 
are out there, like we grew up in a system where it's A, B, C, D. Right. Right. And that cuts down to our experience, you know, like <laughs> this is, it is as much social as it is cultural, as it is personal. Right. Um, and I think that the significant shift here is, you know, is finding a, is finding grading practices that, <laughs> that actually respond to our students. They're, they're like truly more, you know, like student centered instead of imposing seven different grading models on, on a student just by virtue of the lottery of that, that is their, their schedule. That's not fair. Mm-hmm. And, and it's in, you know, it's, it's our responsibility as, as adults to do better. And so, you know, it's, it's my hope that by really clear, you know, being clear in what we want our students to know and to communicate those expectations and to design invitations to design tasks that are language rich and that elicit and, you know, (laughs) those, those target skills, and then give them the tools to actually evaluate the extent to which they're growing. In my mind, that's a kind of a, a path forward, an infrastructure yeah. for our own classrooms to, you know, bring a really more equitable, uh, you know, fairer student-centered, um, you know, approach for learning. It's powerful. And, and I think about, I love that idea of like starting with a small group, kind of working through that, having this, you know, criteria that we're working through you know, um, having our proficiency scales and having these rubrics. Uh, what does this look like on, like, should I be thinking about this in terms of like a weekly basis that I'm, uh, you know, trying to approach? Is this a daily exercise and daily work? Like, what can you give kind of a framework on that perspective as to? Oh, it's daily. Interpreting it. It's daily. It? Yeah, it's daily. I mean, the learning outcomes, I always like, lay out to my students at the start of a unit. Yeah. And then the, you know, the eliciting evidence is daily. I'm listening for it. I'm remarking on it. I'm, it's in my one-on-one conversations, you know, consulting with students. It's in whole group conversations with my students. It's in, it informs my small group conversations with my students. It is constant. That's the beauty of it is it's just a neat feedback loop informed by Really, it's in, informed by your backwards design <laughs> more than anything. And what role would like a flashlight 360 play in that? You know, because what you're just what you're kind of describing is more of a I'm there present with these students. I'm here, you know, listening and remarking on their on their language and that kind of a thing. Um, like how would a flashlight 360 help in that kind of a situation? Well, I mean, I, I think it, it really has the space for, like if you think about eliciting evidence, right? Mm-hmm. Well, think about it like actually in like a number of really crucial steps is, you know, if I'm really aware of what I want my students to know and be able to do, I'm going to look for images and flashlights that can either like provide the opportunity for students to connect to their background knowledge. And it's with, 
you know, it's within that that image and their subsequent responses to that image where I'm actually going to see like evidence of of the schema that they bring into class. I'm going to hear their voices. I'm going to be listening for, you know, for fluency. I'm going to be really focusing on their ideas associated with the concepts. It could be like a really solid, you know, pre-assessment too, mm-hmm. like to kind of to, to get a sense of the um, the language that they bring with them already, while also while also you know you know highlighting some of the opportunities for growth within the skills, within the knowledge, you know, and certainly within um, you know the language forms. Finally, you know, an, another connection between flashlight and the formative assessment practices, you know, under the lens of, of analyzing and, and, and interpreting evidence because, because of the, just the, the neat tools that you know, flashlight offers for students, excuse me, for teachers to provide feedback to, you know, to students. And so in, in my mind, you know, that's, is really like <laughs> three, um, very clear applications of how, you know, flashlight connects to the formative assessment process. Yeah. I, I appreciate you letting me kind of ask you about that and kind of talk mm-hmm. about that for a second. What about, you know, if I'm that teacher and I'm just wanting to do this myself in the classroom, it's, there's not something that we have in place from a district perspective or process or system. And I'm all kind of on my own running with this. Like, where would I start and where would I like, um, how do I, um, how, what's my first step, I guess? Is it, is it lining up those expectations at the beginning of a unit? Like, what would you tell that teacher as far as that first step? And then, and then maybe what we'll do is we can wrap up for today and and move on to act on evidence next time. Yeah. I, I think that it is firstly, like maybe just some, like some background reading, um, you know, from, you know, for instance, like <laughs> we didn't make any of this stuff up. So actually like looking at, you know, like understanding language and some of the, you know, some of the, like the specific, um, you know, like articles and um, I'm thinking even like graphics that all focus on, you know, formative assessment practice or the formative assessment process. It's also really, you know, helpful to, you know, like, uh, ELLs and the New Standards by Aida Walke, Margaret Heritage, and Robert Lin Quanti. It's a 2015 book that really speaks to you know these concepts in motion, right? Um, they don't actually you know use like formative assessment process or formative, but they do speak about formative assessment practice um, and and the value of it. Um, is a really neat new book by George Bunch and Aida Walkie called Amplifying the Curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would start there, um, you know, certainly. And then just on top of that, it's just, you know, looking for evidence from my colleagues and of leveraging backwards design. Like, how do I see my colleagues like really like thinking ahead and anticipating language development opportunities, you know, really articulating expectations to students in the form of learning outcomes and, and, and language objectives. Uh, and I, I would kind of use that 
my own formative observations to broach this, you know, opportunity and, you know, really like an invitation for professional learning with my colleagues. Oh, I love that. I love it. Tim, this is great. I, I'm really enjoying this and I'm looking forward to kind of moving on to that next step on acting on evidence. Uh, when we get together again but thank you so much for taking this time uh, we'll link to those books and some of those articles in in the show notes so that way if anybody wants to review Ooh, those, that's a good idea yeah you cool. can just kind of go to that page and go click and, and go find all of this stuff all in one place so anyways really appreciate you today tim and uh, likewise justin thanks for the opportunity uh, what a pleasure okay we'll be with you soon all right adios guys The ML Chat Podcast is brought to you by Flashlight Learning. Flashlight Learning has helped deliver personalized feedback and progress monitoring to over 75,000 multilingual students nationwide. Flashlight 360 provides students with a platform to showcase their speaking and writing skills, helping teachers gain a better understanding of their students' individualized needs and inform instruction. Teachers are talking about the increased confidence and language proficiency growth they're seeing in their students. A recent study from Johns Hopkins School of Education demonstrates that Flashlight 360 had a significant positive impact on WIDA Access overall composite scores. To learn more, visit flashlight360.com/study.